eBay Motors es tu socio seguro. Con trabajo, piezas nuevas y mucha pasión, transformaste una carrocería oxidada con 100,000 millas en un vehículo totalmente singular. Juegos de frenos, faros, lo que necesites, eBay Motors lo tiene. Con Guaranteed Fit de eBay, te aseguras que la pieza le quede a tu carro a la primera o se te devuelve tu dinero. Y a estos precios, ¿qué más llantas sino dinero? Mantén vivo ese espíritu de Ride or Die, baby, en eBay Motors. eBayMotors.com Solo para artículos elegibles. Se aplican Tienes mucho en tus manos, pero con solo mover un dedo puedes dar marcha atrás con Pro Trailer Backup Assist disponible. Presentamos la nueva Ford F-150 2024. Ya sea que estés trabajando al máximo o divirtiéndote al máximo, esta camioneta te respalda porque está hecha para ser una parte indispensable de tu equipo. Fuerza así de inteligente solo puede ser F-150. Construida con orgullo Ford. Fuerza Ford. This is Real Life Economics, Episode 3, brought to you by Tom Boyaz. Our topic today is trade tariffs, and I'm your host, Gina Sanchez. Welcome to Real Life Economics, where we take economic theory out into the real world, because let's face it, economics happens to you in real life. You can find our show notes at www.reallifeeconomics.com, and you can follow us on Twitter on at reallifeecon. And if there are any topics you want us to cover, drop us an email at reallifeecon at gmail.com. Today I'll be joined by James Mitchell, real-life economics contributor and BAFTA-winning documentarian, as well as special guest Dr. Robert Scott, senior economist and director of trade and manufacturing policy research at the Economic Policy Institute. So let's talk trade. Little do most people realize, but one of the greatest movie franchises of all time is about none other than a trade war. It stars a handsome, snarky smuggler, a small-town farmer from the middle of nowhere, and a princess leading a rebellion against the galactic empire over the taxation of trade routes to the outer-lying star systems. I'm talking about none other than Star Wars, perhaps the first-ever movie to ever be termed a blockbuster. So what can we learn from Hollywood? Are trade tariffs really the path to the dark side? Let's puzzle this out, shall we, James? Back on Earth, tariffs are certainly a subject you can't ignore. Read the papers and it sounds like the US is about to go to war. A trade war. With an election campaign slogan promising to make America great again, it's no surprise that Donald Trump's policies have a protectionist flavour. But what started out in a relatively targeted fashion... On the 1st of March this year, Trump proposed a 25% tariff on steel and aluminum imports from China and much of the rest of the world, has now escalated dramatically in a very short period of time. After retaliatory measures from China, Trump swapped the pistol for a sawn-off shotgun and blasted away at $50 billion worth of Chinese imports in total. And by August the 8th, China had promised to respond in kind. Trump is now threatening to up this to $200 billion in September and could go nuclear and levy a tariff on all Chinese imports worth $505 billion last year, according to the Washington Post. But don't worry if the prospect of an all-out trade war between the two largest economies in the world makes you a little nervous. President Trump tweeted, When a country, the USA is losing many billions of dollars on trade with virtually every country it does business with, trade wars are good 
and easy to win. But is winning a trade war actually winning? Let's take a step back and define some really important concepts. Let's start with why countries trade before we jump ahead as to why they would choose not to trade. Theories on trade between nations have shifted over the years, but initially economists backed removing tariffs and trading freely when possible. It was actually a Scotsman who made the first significant contribution. Adam Smith, in his book The Wealth of Nations, way back in 1776, made the case for free trade between nations. His thinking was that it allows each country in a trading relationship to focus on producing whichever goods that it enjoys an absolute advantage in, and that translates as cheaper or more efficiently. However, a couple of decades later, in 1817, an Englishman, David Ricardo, began wondering what happens if one nation produces every good more efficiently than its trading partner. Why bother trading at all? It was this that led Ricardo to pioneer the concept of comparative advantage and explain why any country can benefit, in theory, from trade. Let's pretend you're trying to decide how to spend your day, and let's assume that you are good at everything. And I mean everything. The apps you make are killer, both on the computer and in the kitchen. Your blog is literally the best blog on the internet, and if that's not enough, you're even the best at vacuuming and folding fitted sheets. And of course, plumbing and home repair. I mean, you can relate, right? Well, since you're so good at everything, you obviously never have to hire anyone to do anything for you. Does that still mean that you do it all yourself? Or do you hire someone to help you with the basics, like cleaning and household repairs, so that you can devote more of your time to doing that one thing that you're uniquely good at, the one thing that will earn you the most money? creating those killer apps, right? Well, you'll focus on those apps. And that's basically how comparative advantage works. Even when a country can do everything better than everyone else, there's still an advantage to specializing because it probably does a few things much better and would happily engage in trade to sell those amazing things, the things that it would have the greatest profit from, while buying the stuff that it makes less efficiently from someone else. Now, when countries shift to focus on their comparative advantage, we start to see production shifts from one sector to another. For example, in the 1990s, the U.S. lost massive jobs in the manufacturing sector while the construction sector boomed. So on one hand, trade makes it possible for the United States to produce even more Boeing jetliners, films, pharmaceuticals, software, and financial services for export. But it also means we produce a lot fewer shoes, T-shirts, Happy Meal toys, and computer memory chips. But does that mean that we should engage in protectionism, which leads a country to create barriers to trade? Because after all, that's what Trump is talking about when he talks about trade tariffs. Gina, could you just explain to us exactly what is a tariff and why would a government use it? That's a great question, James. And the answer is actually quite straightforward. Governments use tariffs to restrict trade. Think about the last time you browsed on Amazon. Let's say you wanted to buy a new Bluetooth headset for your phone. And as you browse, you notice a nice, snazzy Motorola headset made in America's heartland, Chicago, Illinois, and it costs $35. But right next to it, you notice the exact same headset made by Empal, a Hong Kong manufacturer, but it only costs $25. And you're a little tight on cash. So you'll probably go for the $25 version, wouldn't you? Well, tariffs act like a tax. If a government wanted to restrict sales to Hong Kong, it might choose to put a $10 or more tariff on all headsets imported from Hong Kong in order to make you prefer the Motorola headset. There are quite a few reasons that a government might choose to do this. 
First is the infant industry argument, usually used by developing nations looking to gain footing in the global market. They might choose to make their own domestic goods look cheaper or more competitive to their domestic population in order to get good at producing those goods and eventually compete on the global market. South Korea has done this. This raises the price for consumers and shifts production from efficient industries to less efficient industries, and as a result, the output or the GDP falls. But they do build an industry. And that means that the country ends up poorer in the short run. But now there are other reasons, too, and that's the simple one, to raise money. After all, we're running a near-trillion-dollar deficit in the United States. And since the GOP doesn't like the word tax, doesn't a tariff sound much better? And tariffs raise tax revenues at the expense of consumer buying power, and that pushes down growth by shifting production to less efficient industries. So both reasons, the same outcome. But when President Trump and others talk about trade being unfair to Americans, he's fixating on something else, the trade deficit. The fact that in 2016, the US, for example, imported over $294 billion worth of goods from Mexico, while Mexicans only bought $231 billion worth of our stuff. So they sold us $63.2 billion more than we sold them. In theory, if you import more than you export, so in English, if you buy away more stuff than you sell, like we do in the US, then you could cause greater job losses than gains through that trade deficit. But that's only in theory. What the Trump administration seems to suggest is that if you reduce trade, close the trade deficit, then all of those jobs will return to US soil. Well, in real life, things don't work that way. In fact, if you look at the real-life data, you'll notice our trade deficit tends to be the highest when our unemployment is the lowest, according to the Cato Institute study. They find that in the 1980s, unemployment fell and the trade deficit got bigger. During the 1990-91 recession, the trade deficit fell at the same time as the unemployment rate rising. The trade deficit expanded in the 1990s, while unemployment fell steadily. In fact, the unemployment rate fell in all but two of the most recent 14 years in which the trade deficit went up. Why? Well, I'm going to give you a highly technical economic explanation. When Americans have more money, we buy more stuff. The Tax Policy Center explains this in a different way. Their point is that production and exchange, regardless of the current account balance, generates wealth. As an example, they describe an American company exporting $100 million of goods to France, which, after shipping and other costs, makes a $20 million profit. Then they import $120 million worth of French wine and sell that to make another $10 million of profit. Now, the U.S. current account may show a $20 million trade deficit, but American businesses have made $30 million in profit. So the Tax Foundation stresses that measures of trade flows are not definitive indicators of economic health. But is there a case to be made for tariffs? Perhaps the most well-known was made by Paul Krugman of Princeton University and Morris Obsfeld of the University of California, Berkeley. They published the optimal tariff theory in 2009. Let's say you're a mondo huge country 
and you're the only bar in the world of a good made by a little tiny country. If we decide to slap a tariff on that good, it will make it more expensive and demand for that good will drop. However, instead of production shifting, you actually just hurt the little country by demanding less goods. As a result, their production falls and prices go down and the big bully country is better off. So, in theory, a tariff can work to help a large country. And the US, of course, has the largest economy in the world. So it could boost its own economy at the expense of a smaller nation. There should be plenty of scope then for the US to use size to its advantage bilaterally and protect domestic industry and workers' wages, even if it's bad news for pretty much everyone else. But Krugman and Obsfeld thought that in real life, this was impractical as a trade policy as there would most likely be a retaliatory response on other goods and services leading to a trade war in which nobody wins in the long run. That's borne out if you look at the current tit-for-tat between the US and China, the world's second largest economy. And that's before you factor in the response of other parties like the EU. And let's not forget the ever-famous Smoot-Hawley tariff. Picture this. It's June of 1930, and the United States is in the pit of the Great Depression. Unemployment has skyrocketed to 25%. People are literally being crushed under mountains of debt. Senator Reed Smoot and Representative Willis C. Hawley decided to sponsor a bill to protect American businesses and farmers in the form of tariffs on over 20,000 imported goods. Within two years, some two dozen countries adopted similar beggar-thy-neighbor duties putting incredible strain on the world economy and reducing global trade. And that was a lose-lose. En Ford creemos que ya sea que estés bajo el foco de atención o bajo tu propio techo, que tengas 90 minutos o 9 horas, que estés empezando cambios o un largo viaje, fortaleza es hacer todo, como si el mundo entero te estuviera mirando. Presentamos la nueva Ford F-150 2024. Fuerza así de inteligente, solo puede ser F-150. Construida con orgullo Ford. Fuerza Ford. So to help us puzzle out this question, we're going to bring in a guest, Dr. Robert Scott, Senior Economist and Director of Trade and Manufacturing Policy Research at the Economic Policy Institute. Dr. Scott, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. So let's kick it off with a simple question. Should we be as concerned as we all seem to be about trade tariffs? I think the concerns have been greatly overblown. We have good reasons for imposing tariffs. Uh, countries, uh, especially like China and uh, other producers of uh, uh, steel and aluminum in particular, are engaging in uh, and have been engaging for in unfair trade practices for 20 years or more. Uh, they build up massive amounts of excess capacity and have driven uh, producers in other countries out of markets, out of the market, causing uh, unemployment and uh, uh, causing the prices of these metals to fall. In addition, China has been engaging in, in uh, many forms of unfair uh, trade practices in high tech goods as well. And this is really threatening the core of uh, manufacturing expertise in the United States and in other countries. So they needed to be stopped. And the tariffs are a good way to send that message. Dr. Scott, I was wondering, you sound reasonably optimistic about the use of this policy. But are there any other ways that perhaps we could be tackling it? 
And also, I'd, I'd just like to sort of look back to uh, President Bush and the steel tariffs he imposed in, I think it was 2002. And how right. do you read the sort of fallout from that occurrence? Well, I think that uh, the tariffs uh, are fine in principle. The problem is that uh, the, the Trump administration does not have a, a strategy uh, for, for ending this fight. Uh, they seem to be uh, uh, pursuing what I call uh, tactics uh, in absence of the strategy. Uh, and so um, I think that there are other alternatives uh, that would work much better. In the case of steel and aluminum, I think we should have gotten together with other countries uh, and, in a sense, uh, drawn a tariff wall around unfair traders, including China and Russia, Vietnam, other countries that don't trade fairly in those metals. Um, and, and I think in terms of the broader imbalances of trade, I think it's important to step back and acknowledge that it's not just China. Uh, other countries have large trade surpluses, including uh, Japan and the European Union and Korea. And the best way to attack those problems is to rebalance or realign our currencies. So the U.S. dollar needs to fall uh, relative to the country currencies of these other surplus countries. And we've done that. Uh, we've encountered this kind of a problem uh, twice in the past 50 years. Um, and we addressed it by, uh, in both cases, by, again, broadly uh, realigning currencies. Uh, President Reagan did it in 1985 uh, in an agreement called the Plaza Accord, and President Nixon did the same thing in 1971. So there are better alternatives to what we're doing today. So um, from what you're saying, your biggest concern in, in terms of, of trade policy is, is at the moment is, is not so much um, that President Trump has, has reached for the lever of tariffs, but that he could be doing it more efficiently. Um, and perhaps he's, he's using up a little bit of goodwill with economic partners in the process. I think that's right. I think, again, he has no uh, he, he seems to have no vision or overall strategy for how uh, tariffs uh, are going to get us to a resolution of these much uh, deeper trade problems. And, and I think that's the core uh, problem. We need to have a, a plan uh, for how we move uh, from the tariffs, which is a way to uh, to uh, address uh, particular problems. Uh, to a more general solution of these huge trade imbalances. And the problem is that, I mean, the U.S. has a trade deficit that last year uh, on the broadest measure was about $450 billion, and the IMF uh, uh, projects that over the next three years that deficit's going to nearly double to uh, almost $800 billion. And so the, the, the tariffs are, are designed to try and uh, reduce our trade deficit, but in fact, the sum total of all of the Trump administration policies are actually are going to make that deficit much worse. And so we're not addressing the core problem. And to me, that's the issue. Very well put. Um, well, I mean, I think that that we would I think we would all agree that that these are issues that have to be realigned. I mean, there's certainly a number of economists out there um, that um, would say that a trade deficit isn't necessarily a bad thing, that countries can grow um, and producers can book profits even with with trade deficits, and those aren't necessarily a measure uh, of, of, uh, of economic health. I mean, what, what's your response to that? Well, I, I think first uh, I have to acknowledge that perhaps my views are in the minority of the profession, 
Uh, most economists uh, tend to think that uh, uh, trade imbalances are caused by uh, forces unrelated to, tra- to trade. I think that's incorrect. I think that China, for 20 years or more, uh, has been uh, manipulating its currency and just gave it an unfair advantage. It made it acts as a subsidy on all of its exports and attacks on our exports, not just to China, but to the rest of the world. So that's a core problem uh, that needs to be addressed. Um, I, I think, sure, the economy can uh, continue to grow uh, if, we, if we leave this problem uh, festering. Uh, but what it has done is it's uh, two things. It's, it has decimated manufacturing, which is a source of good jobs for most working pe- uh, people. Uh, and it, it also uh, thereby uh, reduces the manufacturing's ability to contribute to the productivity growth, the growth of output per worker which at the end of the day is the most important source of growing incomes in the economy. And so these uh, growing trade deficits and unfair trade policies that we're talking about have contributed uh, to the growth of uh, income inequality and the suppression of wages uh, for working uh, people in the United States and some other countries uh, like the United Kingdom. Uh, that have also suffered from deficits. And so this growing income inequality is a problem. I think it's, it's, it's tearing our country apart and it's contributing uh, to some of this uh, economic uh, nationalist backlash that we're seeing expressed, not just in the United States, but in many countries around the world. Interesting. Well, I think there are a lot of folks out there who are inclined to want to believe in free trade. But I think you're raising a really good point, which is that free trade is a great thing as long as everybody abides by the rules. And so it seems to me that you're hearkening on the fact that we have a situation where you have players who are playing unfairly. And that's what this is about. That's absolutely, absolutely right. Trade uh, can be good, can lead to win-win outcomes for uh, workers uh, in all nations, but we have to do it with rules uh, that I think uh, balance uh, the relative bargaining power of workers and large corporations, and that balance has been uh, been tilted far askew in the last uh, uh, 20 or 30 years, and, and that's really the underlying core problem. Would you say that um, the nature of trading agreements i think you were just sort of driving at that not enough is is maybe being done from a worker's perspective to ensure that benefits from trading don't just go to governments or owners and that standards and conditions for workers upheld uh, in, on both sides of a trading agreement I think it's absolutely critical to raise global labor standards. And in fact, uh, the, the, the trade agreements that we've done have, have not gone far enough uh, in that direction. But in addition, uh, the way we've negotiated these agreements is has been dominated by the large multinational businesses that, that dominate uh, foreign trade and investment flows. And so they've used them as a way to Uh, essentially beat back regulation in the United States and other countries. Uh, So so they've actually tilted the playing field in favor of investors uh, and against working people, not just the United States, but uh, around the world. Uh, And this has led to, uh, as I said earlier, rising income inequality. It's led to a huge surge in profits as a share of, of GDP. So the whole process of negotiating these international trade agreements I think has become become corrupted um, and needs to be addressed. Uh, now, I think that alone is not sufficient. 
to end income inequality. As I mentioned, we need to rebalance currencies and trade. We also need to do a lot more, especially in the United States, uh, to help not just trade impacted workers, but all workers who've been uh, hit with a job loss and to uh, to build a safety net that uh, protects all workers. I think it t- doing those two things together, um, ensuring co- international labor rights and uh, fair trade, and also uh, intervening to uh, build a much uh, more effective social safety net can help uh, uh, stop and perhaps reverse this uh, growing uh, income inequality gap that we've been talking about. Well, thank you. I think that that is very, very sound advice. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. This has been incredibly enlightening. So I think everybody can agree that global trade is a win-win. But as our guest highlighted, that has to happen within rules. And there are potential benefits um, from thinking about how to realign trade. But I think we're really looking at a situation where you actually need a strategy to do that. And this may not be the best strategy. As usual with President Trump, it's looking unpredictable. But with the US and China facing off against each other, you'll be able to feel the effects of this trade war rippling out onto the furthest flung outposts of the galaxy. In our next podcast, we'll discuss women in the workforce. As the Me Too movement gathers pace, let's dive into how much value women bring to the workforce. I'm Gina Sanchez. And I'm James Mitchell. And this has been Real Life Economics, brought to you by Tomboy X. Visit us at www.reallifeeconomics.com. Follow us on at Real Life Econ on Twitter. And email us at reallifeecon at gmail.com. And thank you for listening to Real Life Economics, because economics happens to you in real life. Boost Mobile tiene una gran oferta para que aproveches tu reembolso de impuestos al máximo y te mantengas conectado. Al cambiarte a Boost, recibe un 50% de descuento en tu primer mes de datos ilimitados. O, con un plan ilimitado de 40 dólares, llévate un Samsung Galaxy A15 5G por $39.99. Obtén los mejores teléfonos en las redes 5G más grandes del país. Con Boost Mobile, cambiarse es fácil. Solo visita BoostMobile.com. Boost Mobile, sin miedo al éxito. Para clientes nuevos y solamente en línea, requiere Arupay. 50% de descuento en el primer mes requiere un plan de 25 dólares al mes. Aplican otras restricciones. Visita BoostMobile.com. Este abril te invitamos a nuestra feria virtual Univisión Contigo rumbo a la universidad. Conéctate virtualmente con representantes de colegios y universidades en la costa este. Desde Nueva York a Florida, aprende sobre ayuda financiera, becas y otros recursos para continuar tu educación. Regístrate para asistir y para la oportunidad de ganar una tableta. Te esperamos en Univisión Contigo rumbo a la universidad del 3 al 9 de abril. Regístrate ya en univision.com diagonal universidad.